business, leadership, high performance, the journey. All right, uh, welcome everybody to the show, and I'm extremely lucky to have today's guest on the show. Um, he's not just an extremely brilliant and talented individual, but quite the character as well, I must add. Uh, as an expert in the area of finance, uh, our guest today has four doctoral degrees from leading business schools in Europe and currently working on his fifth, yes, fifth doctoral degree. Uh, he started four bank holding companies, dozens of banks, purchased more than 200 uh, different banks, taken a company public, sold multiple companies, worked with thousands of amazing people. Also has six kids, nine grandkids, and an amazing wife who can tolerate, I love this, what he says here, his mental wanderlust. Uh, he dabbles with artificial intelligence models as well. Uh, and he also has scholarships that have aided the education of more than 100 students. But in his most impactful role as of recently, he serves as the math guy and unpaid Uber driver to an 11-year-old international author, illustrator, speaker, and philanthropist who also just so happens to be his daughter. So welcome to the show today. Uh, the personality under the black fedora that he's known for in the Fargo area, Mark Anderson. Welcome. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me. It's delightful. It's uh, Johnny Carson used to say, you never want to follow a, a dog or a kid. So uh, hopefully you don't have me right after my 11-year-old because <laughs> listeners will be sorely disappointed listening to me compared to her, but we'll stumble along. Yeah, and we actually, as we're recording this, actually, we just released um, his daughter Sawyer, uh, her episode, um, which was extremely popular. I know I uh, had a blast talking with Sawyer. Um, and so th those of you that maybe aren't super familiar, um, absolutely check out her episode if you look back in kind of the, the podcast archives. But um, Sawyer um, basically has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for uh, water wells in Africa, and it all kind of stemmed from... A, tr a trip that you had originally taken to Africa through your church, I believe, right? That is correct. And she basically got super interested in the stories that you brought back and what started out as, man, selling cookies at a garage sale turned into, uh, man, full-blown book speaking opportunities, but uh, has saved thousands of lives uh, through her initiatives, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's one of those things in life where you have the opportunity to look at where you are today. And you go, look at where I am. How did I get to here? And I look at this one little series of vignettes and I trace it back to the question she asked in the book. Hey, mom, why dad go to Africa? And, and at the time, you know, that was percolating in her mind. There's no way you would map that single course, right? All of those potential paths that would lead to where it is today. Because as, as you point out, it's a crazy story. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a it's a crazy oh, story. The other interesting thing that we didn't put down when I put some summary down that that she and I think it was when she was visiting with you, she referred to her team, and I asked her after, "What do you mean your team?" She goes, "Well, mom <laughs> does the marketing, and you're the math guy, and do the Uber, and then you're Betsy Ross." <laughs> it's and again, you've seen it. One of the things that she does uh, are these genuine, authentic African wax fabric shatenge bags. Yep, and she's done a lot, and a lot of volunteers at the church did uh, any number for a while, and then. The inventory ran out about a year ago. And it's like the lady that had sewn over 100 bags for her was in Arizona. And there were orders for these Chitenge bags. Well, again, it's it's pretty influential and important, right? Someone wants to buy a bag for 50 bucks. Those $50 would become $300 and bring water to six people for life. So um, my wife goes, I can't sew. 
And she goes, can you sew? I said, well, yes. <laughs> and she goes, really? And uh, so... Hidden <laughs> talent there. So, uh, yeah, it goes way, way, way back to days on the farm with the push pedal uh, operating it by hand oh, and yep. the old things. And absolutely amazing. So um, started working on that. Sawyer would do the design. And we go back and forth. And, and she goes, God, this is really fun. She goes, I get to design it and change it while you're doing it. I said, yeah, it makes it a whole lot more work for me. She goes, you're like my Betsy Ross. She's a big history buff, right? Especially that Hamilton era stuff and American <laughs> Revolution. So it's like, oh, hey, I have my own Betsy Ross, my dad. It's, it's funnier for her than, than uh, for me when I'm in her little sweatshop. <laughs> yeah, she's a, uh, she's an amazing individual, and I'm super excited to see just where everything goes. For well, it's an because... interesting thing. I hope, Patrick, you get an opportunity to walk around sometime, and when you introduce yourself, hi, I'm Patrick Metzger. Um, I am the father of this child, this child, this child. So I introduce myself. I'm Mark. I'm Sawyer's dad. It's like, oh, that's, that's become your identity. Yep, yep. <laughs> funny yeah absolutely if you have not checked out that episode um make sure you do that it's called water warrior uh sawyer anderson so but i know uh mark i want to dive into today i know your fifth doctoral degree like i uh mentioned in the introduction you're currently working on which is which is a pretty unique kind of the topic of it we're going to save that for the end to kind of uh dive into but Let's go back to the beginning of the journey. So, grew up in Detroit Lakes. Um, bring us back. What kind of kid were you, Mark? What were you into? It's interesting. Um, I had a chance to share a, a little story, and it's interesting how you can look back at what you were like as a child, and and you don't really know your path until it chooses you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can look back and say, well, that made perfect sense. And it's interesting because when, when daughter Sawyer was uh, in her preschool, at age four, we went into a parent comp- parent-teacher conference, and the teacher said, you know, we love having Sawyer. She does this, and she likes to draw, and she likes to color and do this, but she doesn't want to build the pink tower. And I go, what pink tower? And they show me these blocks. We want every kid to work on their dexterity and their construction, right, engineering skills, spatial relations, yep. and build a pink tower. She just doesn't want to build that pink tower. And I said, let me tell you a story. It's all about stories, right? Um, Aesop used fables, Christ used parables. Stories are amazing. So I said, back when we were young, my brother was like a little over a year and a half older than me. And we would go out there and we would pick mustard plants for a penny a piece and toil away for hours and hours and hours. And then we'd pick rocks, a penny a piece, and you'd lug these things. I mean, these were long, hard days, right? And we'd come back. And now my approach was, how can I get him to do more work than me and share the proceeds? <laughs> So again, true, true business savviness so at a young age there, Mark. I'm about four years old trying to figure out how I can put 25% of the effort in. He puts 75% of the effort in and we split the take. So it's like, okay, that's cool. And we always split the take. He's, he's like incredible. So we'd get done. We'd tally up the dollars. We'd save them up. And every time he'd have a chance, he goes, okay, hey, let's go to the store. So he would go to the store that sold airplane and car models and he'd buy airplane and car models and he'd build these elaborate cars and these things that required dexterity and putting things together. And he goes, don't you want to? Nope. I said, I'd go to Thomas grocery and buy baseball cards. And I taught myself, and this was like age four, five, and six. I taught myself math from the back of baseball cards and memorization techniques where I'd have Mm -hmm. like thousands of baseball cards. And the game was memorize every single piece of information you can about the front of the card and then go to the back. 
which again, turns out to be a really interesting thing to develop how you approach learning and retention. And I said, so I told the, the teacher, I said, here's the deal. My brother spent all of his earnings on models, things to build. Guess what he does? He's an engineer. I focused mine on something that I saw having personal value and long-term value as a collectible. And I saw that as an investment. Guess what I did? I went down a finance track. Mm -hmm. I said, the kid doesn't need to build the pink tower. Let her write a play. Yeah. She's never built a pink tower yet. Yeah, there's there's so much truth to that. I mean, kids are, everybody, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a kid, you're an adult. Everybody has different learning styles. Everybody has different interests. And man, don't, yeah, don't, don't shove kids down those holes. And yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yep. Yeah, as, as a former teacher of over 10 years, I mean, yeah, I, I, I would always argue that with other teachers as well, where they, where they would do the exact same mm -hmm. thing you said, like, oh, this, they all have to do this and they all have to do this. No, 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 no. If they don't have an interest in it, let them do what they are interested in. You know, if there's an equivalent project, whatever that they can do, you know, give something that interests them. So I don't know, you know, if it was, if it was because we came from a relatively humble background and it was a different time and we didn't have all the distractions in life and didn't have a lot of, of things that uh, you just work hard. Mm -hmm. And when you're, when you're earning a penny at a time or a nickel at a time, those are long days. So you learn the value of that piece and, and you learn the appreciation um, of everything you do um, and the value of that time. So that was a big piece of it. Uh, baseball was a big part because we played baseball. It's what we did. And it's interesting because I coached baseball for about 10 years. And during and again, I still have never seen a game of pickup baseball here. We played pickup baseball two, three, four times oh, a yeah. day. Yep. It's like before school, everybody's here. You're going to play a game. You're going to play workup. I asked some kids, I said, Do you, have you ever played workup? They go, what's workup? I go, seriously? Wow. Have you ever played stickball? No. Have you ever played plastic ball? No. Huh. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, I'm not even a baseball guy, and we used to play wiffle ball in the street Without all a doubt. the time in the summer. Yep. All the time. Huh. So, you know, that was that was kind of the interesting interesting dynamic, and and uh, my my brother was, I would characterize as like the the ideal the ideal son. I was kind of like that rebel without a clue. <laughs> it's like, I just want to do my own thing. It's like, I don't want, it's, it's like, no. That doesn't surprise me, Mark, <laughs> knowing you. <laughs> they go, my, my, my dad was a truck driver, and he'd say, okay, I'm back in town. We need to work on these trucks. And I'm like, there's nothing fun about working on trucks. I want to go play baseball. I want to ride bike. I want to look at baseball cards. And my brother's like, okay, let's go do it. I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. And I'd find a lot of creative ways to get my brother to do more of the work. Yep. Delegation Funny. of labor, right? I wanted to be the supervisor, <laughs> even though he was the older one. So, again, it, I think that was kind of that consistent thread that, for whatever reason, um, kind of needed that independence and just needed to do my own thing and roll with it. And uh, I guess that's that's kind of how I started growing up. Sooner or later, I'll finish that growing up thing. Do you think, <laughs> do you think your love for numbers and just – kind of interest in numbers, finance, started way back then with the baseball card thing? So it's interesting. Um, my, my mother was a very, very young mother. I was a relatively precocious child. My brother is amazing. I mean, he's like the perfect child who listens to everything. I was the opposite. It's like that movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. <laughs> I guess I was Twin, the Danny DeVito. Twins, yeah. <laughs> I was the Danny DeVito in that deal. 
And so she would, my mother, so she could work, would send us to the farm, and particularly me, because her mother could handle us, I guess, especially me. And it's interesting because my uncle would work long days in road construction. And, and, and when I was four, long, long time ago, when I was four, he took me to a store near Audubon, and they had baseball cards. And we'd listen because I'm dating myself here. Never date yourself. <laughs> Even in high school, don't date yourself. Find a girl. Um, but, um, or a guy, whatever. So it's, it's interesting because you do this thing. 1961, first year the Minnesota Twins come from Washington to play in Minneapolis, right? And my uncle loves baseball, had never seen, never did see a, a Major League Baseball game, but saw a whole lot of youth baseball. And uh, we're there, and, and it's like, yeah, he's so excited about the Twins. We'd listen to it on the radio. He'd have Ham's beer. I would, of course, never try a sip of Ham's beer when I was four. <laughs> as, he's, as he's winking to me. <laughs> <laughs> Told you, I was all about, all about the rules, right? <laughs> anyway, and I'm like, hey, look at these. And it's like, it's a nickel a pack or whatever it was, right? And he's like, okay, we'll get that. So we open up some 1961 cards, and I look at them, and I'm studying these things, and I'm memorizing these cards. I'm looking at the, at, at the pictures, the positions. There are a handful of Hispanic players, and I'm trying to pronounce this. And it's like, okay, why would someone's name be Josie? What's a Jewin? <laughs> Jewin Marichal. And I look at these things, and, and I would develop this game, right? It's easy with five cards and then 10 cards. And then 20 cards. And I'd memorize them all, and he would, long days, cover them up, and I'd tell him, yep, here's a player, position, team. All of a sudden, you're sitting at 100 cards, and it's too easy. So you turn over the back. Bats left, throws right, six foot one, 175 pounds. All of a sudden, it's like all these things just start flowing through your mind, and they start kind of connecting like little dots. And then I look at it, and I see pictures, and I see this ERA. Okay, four years old. I'm yep. like, hmm, these are interesting numbers. And then I see batting average. I'm like, how do you get this? How do you get this? How do you get this? Um, and, and he tries to explain it to me, and it's like, okay, that, that's interesting. So as time goes on, after you're four, you get to be five, right? If you're really good, you get to be five. <laughs> so we go through, and it's 1962, which is an amazing year for baseball cards and, and, and my math development. And, and I'm looking at these cards, and, and I go, I need you to explain it to me again. So he explains batting average to me. So I'm sitting there, and I get a pencil and paper, and I'm scratching these things down. And I'm going, show me how to calculate this. So I'm doing long division at five. Yep. And he shows me this. He leads me to my own devices. And then he explains ERA to me, and I'm doing division multiplication by myself. And then as we're doing things and, and, and everything, it's like, okay, now the game was try and figure out how to do it in your head without pen and paper. And it just became this consumptive little game. Even to the point where, oh, Tony Oliva's batting 328, um, and he's going three for four. So uh, if he gets a hit here, his batting average is going to go up. And I sit there in my mind, well, yeah, he should probably go up to about 326. And it just became this, this thing where numbers talk to you. Mm -hmm. And I said, it's like, and I, I give the story of, of A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe, the story of, of uh, John Nash, Nobel Prize laureate John Nash. And I said, I'm no John Nash. Like I said, Django Fett and I are just simple men trying to make my way in the universe. Just a simple guy with a really cool journey. But John Nash, they show these pictures in the movie, and I'm sure you've seen it, where numbers just pop off the page, pop mm -hmm. off the page. They come to him, they come to him. And I said, it's the same thing. And, and, and it's that way in so many different, different areas of passion and interest and skill, and everybody's given different things that, that they speak to you. And numbers would just draw me in, and they'd talk to me. And I guess that's where the appreciation 
uh, came and, and uh, we became good friends. Yep. Interesting. So it all started with baseball cards, huh? And just the game of what, how much could you memorize? It was all a game. It was like, can I make it through a coffee can full of 2,000 cards and not miss anything? Because that's the other problem is, is that I, through this process, for whatever reason, and, and I wish I hadn't, I learned this appreciation that it's a lot better, better to be right than wrong, and I don't like making mistakes, which is a tough thing. It's a tough standard, right? I tell people, Ted Williams hit 406 in 1941. It's the greatest you know, batting average in the modern area of baseball, and he, was, he missed 60% of the time. Mm-hmm. I said, that's a pretty tough standard. And then you escalate it to 90, 95, 99%. Not much margin for error, is there? Yep. Huh. Interesting. So where where did this continue then? I mean, obviously growing up, you had a love for baseball, numbers. Um, take us through, I mean, where did things go from there through school, through college, getting well, into doing what you, you did? Know, you get all these different journeys and, and you try and figure out who you are and that kind of stuff. And it's interesting. I, I believe we were at the early stage at least in Detroit Lakes, of math contests. So here's a great story, right? Everything's about stories. So my, I, I one time uh, went downstairs and found my wife's Letterman jacket. It weighs like 800 pounds because oh, yeah. she was in track and it's got all these... Oh, yeah, pins and leather. It's and like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and uh, so I go in and I pull out a box of math plaques and ribbons and trophies, and I go, here's what I got. And she goes... That really, really defines nerd when you've got that many math. You've got a box full of math trophies. So anyway, I was really fortunate that, that I think the program um, in Detroit Lakes, you know, they're trying to be progressive and give a number of students a nice challenge, an opportunity to grow and learn. And we're doing some cool things where you're able to do things at an earlier age and, you know, do calculus and do things. So they decided to put different people on competitive teams and, you know, it kind of worked and it was kind of fun. It was kind of neat. I tell people winning pretty much always beats losing it's kind of nice to get that blue ribbon or that nice gold plaque instead of the other one. So you kind of get this thing going, hmm, I don't mind. Let's go and win. Let's just win. Losing isn't an option. You yep. just do it. Um, so it was like, but along this path, for whatever reason, there was this, this independent streak. And it didn't crystallize until a little bit later, which is kind of what happens next. Uh, and that's, that's 1976 after I graduate, but there was this, this fierce independence thing. Maybe it's because I was a second child, right? Are second kids supposed to be independent? And the first one, or, the firstborn is supposed to be polite, calm, um, rule following. And then the second one breaks the mold and kind of runs down his own path. Yeah, it's usually the youngest, right? Usually the youngest yeah. that kind of blazes their own trail. And yep. So I ended up being that person that just liked independence, didn't, had this problem with authority. Always. Were you, let me back up, were, were you one of those kids in school that was like just, this was so easy, it was just boring for you? I'm not sure it was, how do I put this in a non-arrogant, self-aggrandizing way? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, some things just didn't really spark the challenge to keep your focus. Yep. So you found yourself doing other things. Yep. Right? Yep. Definitely. Um, so I think that that's a big path. And, you know, different people have a, a wide range of different uh, skills and, and comfort levels. And while there are some things I look at and go, I don't even want to look at that because that's just not my thing. It doesn't interest me. But when you start throwing math on the table and the sciences and history, it's like, ooh, this is cool stuff. You just consume it. And, and it's, I, it became a little bit like feeding the beast, which is it, it's the theme, right? I mean, 
How many people have five master's degrees and four doctorates? It's feeding the beast because the mind became this beast. It's like an old, you know, stove fire, mm-hmm. wood burning stove. You got to keep feeding it or it yep. goes out. Yep. So that's kind of the the analogy to the process. So uh, it was that, yeah. So when you're when you're bored or you're learning a little too fast and get impatient, you can cause a little trouble. Yep. Especially if you kind of don't listen very well or you have a little orientation <laughs> to be. Uh, like I say, a rebel without a clue. Not without a cause, but without a clue, right? So down that path, very independent streak, and you do your own thing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my brother decided to be an engineer, so I decided I was going to go into engineering, right? Because that's what you do if you're good at math and your brother does it. Mm-hmm. So I, I go to MSU. I'm in a pre-engineering program and and uh, uh, take their calc class and go in another math class. I go, this is cool stuff. This is cool stuff. This is cool. I like this. And take a couple of engineering classes, and I go, this isn't my thing. Um, and, and you go through it. But that's that academic piece. The non-academic piece is kind of that, you know, as, as you grow and mature and you have these experiences, you start to define, right, those journeys of self-discovery. You mm-hmm. start to find out who you are. Yep. So there's this apocryphal, this, um, this momentous event in 1976, right? I go through school. It's in, I'm early in the sophomore stage. And it's, it's Christmas vacation. And I'm driving mail truck. Three o'clock in the morning, in the afternoon, and and it's that time where I, I'm back in Detroit Lakes, and you get together with some high school friends, right? Because you still do that mm-hmm. when you're old and broken down like me. Now you don't get to see many of your high school friends anymore because <laughs> they're all over the place. Most of them are retired, like you know, living a life of luxury and playing mahjong or shuffleboard. <laughs> um, but super exciting. <laughs> I was out with some guys, and they said, and, and like it's like two o'clock in the morning, and we'd been kind of doing what nineteen-year-old guys do at two o'clock in the morning on a Friday night. And, and this guy goes, Hey, you gotta come over to my place and do this. And we'll, we'll just hang out. So you go over there to hang out, right? Mom and dad are gone. So you hang out and they accidentally find their paps blue ribbon or something, um, or their whatever. And uh, he goes, you guys got to hear this. He had gone to St. Cloud state. He goes, I just heard this. This is the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life. And he puts an album on, turns the lights out. Okay. We're sitting in there, you know, we're 19 years old. It was legal drinking age back then. So we're legally, yep. we're legally drinking Windsor in one hand and past Blue Ribbon and in the PBR. other. PBR. Of course. It was popular <laughs> then. And we're just kind of doing this thing and telling big stories and, you know, being big shots. It's everything like that. And they put it on and there's this sound. And there's this sound. And he put on the album Rush uh, 2112 which is the fourth studio album by the greatest band in the known universe, probably in the <laughs> undiscovered territories as well. And uh, it just captured, drew us in. And he's like, you don't believe this. This is three guys doing this. And I'm sitting there mesmerized. It's a seven-part song, basically almost an opus, that's, that's, that's a lyricized and, and musical adaptation of Anne Rand's anthem, which is a story of one versus the collective, right? Uh, it's like, you're not, you can't be I, me. You have to be the we in Anthem. You've read Anthem, you've seen it. And, and I'm listening to the lyrics in my own way, and, but the music, because you know, there's seven parts to it. The first one's all instrumental. And I'm just, how can you humanly do this? This is amazing. I'm just drawn in. And I start listening to the lyrics. I'm going, 20 minutes and 33 seconds later, I'm like, what just hit me? So huh. the first thing the next day, I've got to find this album. Played it nonstop, studied the notes, studied the notes, read the notes, read and ran anthem like 10 times. And I'm going, I'm equality. 
It's okay to be yourself. You don't have to be the masses. Do your own thing, right? Chart your own path. And if, it's, like, it's like Bruce Springsteen said in, in concert. He goes, before I wrote my best-selling biography, um, my story was, was growing up. And the lyric is, when they said, sit down, I stood up. And I said, you know what? That's kind of the message of Anthem. That's the message of 2112. It's like, you can be an individual. You can go your own path. You can do your thing. It's okay to be an individual, not to conform. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's like, I'm good with that because I haven't conformed for 19 years. I don't want to be in that box. Yep. So it's, f- so it's kind of just confirming everything that you had kind of felt about yourself all along. It was that freeing thing that said, they said it. It's okay. Yep. So you just go and do your thing. So that was that thing that's kind of framed it. And it's like, it's so incredible. And it just became this, this, this whole thing that starts defining and, and resonates, right? And, and you look forward to it and it just grows. 46 times I've seen him live. 46 have, times you've seen Rush? Yeah. In concert? Yeah. All of my older kids, four older kids have all gone with them. <laughs> you mentioned Sawyer. They have a little song that's called Tom Sawyer. My wife is a, liter- oh, a literature yeah. major. So when we were talking about uh, names for Sawyer, boy or girl, um, she saw a little book by a guy named Mark Twain and said, I love that name. I saw a little song by a band called Rush, Tom Sawyer. I'm going, hey, I like that name. And uh, we had a pretty easy decision. It's like, hey, it's Sawyer. So she has her version. I have my version. Yep. Oh, neat. So huh. it, it, is, it just kept growing. And the interesting thing as you grow up and, and you get more attuned with, with lyrics or film or literature, the words, the stories, they resonate with you and you grow with them and they start to populate how you approach things. It starts to create your core ideology, right? Mm-hmm. And there are so many elements in there that just built on that and it just kept resonating and resonating and growing. And and it kind of becomes that piece that I guess as you keep going to concerts, people start going, oh, you're that Rush guy. Well, yeah, I only have whatever, whatever. So. <laughs> Interesting. I still can't believe that you've seen him 46 times in concert. Yeah, I feel badly it wasn't more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so where did this lead you then? I mean, obviously 19 years old, you had this big self-discovery, kind of a big confirmation to just be yourself, blaze your own trail, do your own thing, boom, what was next? So it's really interesting, you know, how, how things event, events happen. And, and uh, I had mentioned the program I'm in, there's this, this very, very elegant Italian consultant named Maurizio Chabiglini. His name is just elegant. He's brilliant. And he had us go through this process and, and, and define your, your, for lack of a better word, um, define your practice, right? It's like, what do you do? Who are you? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a little bit of that, that self-discovery process. And, and that kind of, kind of causes everybody to go back and, and analyze that piece. And, and one of the things he talks about, he says, there's, there's really three, Three types of obser- observers. There's, there's non-observers, passive observers, and active observers. Serendipity happens more often when you're an active observer. And I look back and I go, so many times in my life, it's been this active observation that has opened a path that has chosen me, right? Something spoke to me to go down that path. It, it's, it's a little bit, and actually this happened two weeks ago with someone that I know. Uh, she was walking down the street and, and wasn't on her cell phone, wasn't looking at the car, wasn't talking to somebody. And found hundred dollars lying on the sidewalk, right? Yeah. And, and if you're doing this, you can't. If you're looking at yeah, your phone. Your so phone. it's interesting because a really good friend of mine, 
I was at the process of going, okay, I switched from engineering to math because math's fun. Finished a math degree. I go, what am I going to do with math degree? I'll be a, I don't want to teach. I don't want to be an actuary. He goes, what do I do? He goes, well, you like money. You like numbers. You like math. I took this finance class. It's really cool. You'll love it. And fortunately, I was listening. I was there. I was in tune instead of somewhere else. And I go, all right, I'll try it. And I took the first finance class. And after the first couple of days, I'm like, this is it. Huh. It's all about the world of, of how things fit together. And it opened up that, that door to the future, right? Yep. And it just spoke to me. I said, this is interesting. This is interesting. And every step along the way kind of created that gratification, took the finance classes, finished up. And during that process, met some really cool professors. Um, one of them was, a, was an adjunct. And he had just finished his MBA and, and had a CFA charter was a chartered financial analyst designation, and we had a lot of conversation. I'm going, I'm this. You're an impressive guy. You know a lot of stuff. I want to know a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And this is a path to knowing a lot of stuff. Yes, I need to get a CFA. I need to get an MBA. So right there, it crystallized that said, okay, I've done this. I like this. I found my thing. And you were how old at the time that this happened? Twenty one. Okay. So that's, that's pretty young, I mean, to find your thing, because yeah. I think a lot of people struggle for a long time trying to find their thing. I would say you're 100% correct. And, and, and that just resonated and spoke to me. It's like, okay, I want to do this. And, but I also said, I want to do it better. I want to enjoy the journey more. Mm-hmm. Because I went for an undergraduate degree. It was all about, okay, I don't have a lot. If I get through this and get a good job, I'll have more. Might not have a lot, but I'll have more than very little. And more than very little is a whole lot nicer than nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, all right, I wouldn't mind having a little bit more than nothing. Uh, so it's like, I got to get done. So it was all about getting done and not just reflecting and pulling it in saying, here's this piece, let me enjoy it. So uh, ended up uh, interviewing a few places and said, you know, it's that piece where kind of seems like banking seems like a really cool place, right? So I interviewed and, and I accidentally got hired by First Bank System, which is now U.S. Bank. And and they had a training program, which is really cool. And there's some really amazing things that happened during this process that, that are stories. Uh, and got into it and had a chance to, to go through that path. And, and here's one of those things about how moments define you. So there's, a, there's a, a bank president. And I'm like 22 years old. And it's, I've been in the job three months. George Peterson, very, very elegant gentleman, right? And he's been a bank president for like 25, 28 years. Calls me in his office. And he goes, Hey, Mark, understand that you like finance and you're doing a nice job for us. Really appreciate that. Um, I want to I show you something. He goes, this is uh, what we call a profit plan. It's our budget for next year. He goes, I've done this for the last 30 years. He goes, you've worked hard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you have part of this and show you how it's done. So he started going through the process. And then, then it was a different technology era, right? And this is how small moments can alter your 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 timeline, right? Mm-hmm. It can alter the trajectory you're on in so many ways. And this is one of those lessons in life. It's like, you don't know what is going to materially alter your future at any point in time. So he's going through this and I'm noticing something. He's going and it's quarterly because monthly is a lot more work. And he's taking deposit balances by category, this CD, this CD, this deposit, this deposit. And he's growing some, declining some. And then he's got interest rates changing. And then he goes through the end and he goes, well, here's our average balance. And here's how I go through this. And this is the uh, average rate we pay. And I go, no, it's not. I'm sorry, Mr. Peterson. That's not the way it's done. I go, you need to create, it's, it's basically using a weighted average where 
you've got a smaller balance for a quarter of the year than a larger balance for the other quarter of the year. You need to wait um, by the balances you have for your rate. He goes, what do you mean? So I walk through and I show it to him and he goes, I've been doing my budget wrong for 28 years. Where'd you learn that? <laughs> I said, probably learned it when I was about five, but. I yeah. <laughs> Back of a baseball card? <laughs> yeah. I said, well, I said, I just thought everybody knew this. And he goes, I'm calling the corporate office. I think you've got a good future with this company. And he did. Wow. And, and interesting, the next day, you, I get a call from the human resource person, and they said, you know, we had, we had 48 people in our training program. We've mapped out where they're going to go. We had you pegged to be here. But these gentlemen have said, you've got a unique skill in this area. We want you to go to one of these banks because we think they're particularly adept and suited with a very, very talented staff to train you so that you can go down a business banking path and, and do some things with commercial lending. Oh, that's cool. What do I know? And, and they opened me up to go to work with some very, very talented people. And one thing leads to another, leads to another. And I mean, I'm on the job four days in Austin, Minnesota, and uh, uh, a gentleman drops off some three-ring binders and he says, hey, I think the future of banking is based on this. He goes, it looks really detailed. He goes, why don't you study it? I just got back and I read through this thing, read through this thing. And I said, okay, I need to figure out how banks make money. So I went and got a Wall Street Journal, found the 25 largest public trade banks in America, wrote them, because we didn't have the internet then, right? Yep. Wrote them a letter asking for their annual report in 10K. They all filtered in. A lot of those names are gone today. Every one of them is in a different shape. Read them cover to cover. Cover wow. to cover. I said, now I understand how banks make money. Decomposed it and ended up going through this process. And then he did that. I went to the bank president and said, we need to buy a computer. A PC. Didn't have one, right? I mean, this isn't the day where you've got, you know, all the technology tools available. This is this is like the dark ages. I mean, we we're yep. basically... What year was this, roughly? Uh, this was 1979-80. This was 1980. Okay. I mean, this is this is pretty primitive yep. era, right? I mean, you were starting fire with, with rock, with flint. Oh, yeah. We didn't have flamethrowers. So, he goes, what do you have in mind? And I kind of showed some things I drew out, and he goes, all right, let's go for it. Shop around, got an Apple IIe with probably less computing power than your watch. Right. Oh, way less. Incredibly <laughs> small. Yep. Incredibly small. And I started putting this process together. And basically, it was about financial management. It wasn't my job. My job was credit. But I was really intrigued by how banks made money and the nature of the business that it's about risks and interest rates moving and balances moving. And I said, this is really interesting. It's all about weighted averages, this thing that opened the door. So I put this, this model together and uh, presented it to him. And he goes, You did this yourself? How'd you learn that? I said, mm. at the time, I had just started going to the MBA program at St. Thomas, because again, that was part of my plan, mm -hmm. MBA, and then ultimately more. And uh, I, uh, I uh, put this, this model together, gave it to him. He goes, let's run it. And part of the model was, let's understand what we're going to do next month, right? That's pretty cool, right? This, yep. is, this is primitive era to be able to develop this knowledge of your income statement, your balance sheet, and the structure so that you can project the next month. And it was like, pretty good, <laughs> He goes, can you project out two months? That was pretty good. And he said, we need to start managing from this. And uh, next thing I know, about four or five months go by, and he goes, would you mind if I share this with some of my counterparts? No. Well, lo and behold, within short order, they asked me to move to Fargo. And within two years, like a lot of banks were just using this. Mm -hmm. I'm like 24 years old. Wow. And banks were using this process. And there are a few other things, too, and, and, and we're able to put it in. And it kind of opened some pathways and some doors that, that kind of 
made things happen. And then, you know, as, as we get into 1985, and I'm still pretty young, First Bank System decides, because we're in the depths of an ag crisis and banks are struggling, agriculture is struggling, rural areas are really, really struggling. There's a lot of things going on. You know, we've had a lot of uh, inflection due to interest rates in 1980 and 81 and, and failures in the financial services sector. And uh, First Bank System at the time said, we want to sell a bunch of banks. And uh, the gentleman I was working with came up, and a brilliant strategic thinker, and he said, I think there's a major opportunity. Towns like this, 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 they need banks. They need financial services. Yeah, they're going to change. They're going to evolve. But that's our job as managers. He goes, but I've never put together a bank holding company. I've never bought a bank. He goes, I need you to read everything you can find. And let's come up with a plan to put it together. So uh, we took a fair amount of time to come up and developed a bank valuation model. Didn't go to class for it. Just created your own, huh? Created my own, kind yep. of pulling in all those tools that I had, had, had learned about. Put the valuation model together, and we went down this path and identified the banks. And, and at the time, we weren't able to have one company because we had banks in three states. So we literally had to um, have agreements where they couldn't work together and form three different bank holding companies and share resources and, and went down that track and had a very, very, very complex capital structure by necessity, because it's, it's, you know, you, you kind of create this, this opportunity that says, well, if I'm going to do it, I want to get as much from me as possible, right? This is the good stuff. I want some of the cheap money here, not as cheap here, not as cheap here, and I want the biggest return for me. This is a weighted average, weighted in my favor, and that's what it's all about, right? It's like working with my brother when I'm four. Yep. How do I get him to do 75% of the work and for me to get half of the pay? Same thing here is, how do I get away with putting in 1% of the capital and getting 10% of the company. This is America. This is the land of opportunity, yeah. baby. <laughs> and it's all about this financial engineering structure and how to put it together. And we put it together. There's a really cool story where we were on the way to raise capital. A lot of our investors were venture capitalists from the East Coast. And uh, we were positioned in a way that we were going to meet with a couple of gentlemen. I won't name. Sometimes when I tell the story, I name them because um, I remember them vividly. And uh, we met at the Parker House Hotel, fam uh, famous for the Parker House Rolls. And we went in there, and, and they said, do you want any drinks? I said, no, i gotta be, I got to be on my best behavior. I'm just going to have a Diet Coke. And uh, so we're meeting with these guys, and they say, tell us a little bit about this. So you go through the thing you're talking about, and he goes, well, before you go too far, let me tell you something. I mean, we haven't even gotten, like, an appetizer. Meals a long ways away. We have a piece of advice for you, too. What's that? We suggest that you quit this fool's quest, get on the first flight back to Bumchuck, North Dakota, beg for your sorry jobs back, and you will thank us the rest of your pathetic lives. Wow. <laughs> they both had MBAs from a certain Ivy League school, Yep. which I've made a practice of trying to share the story about. And, and that was it. We didn't even get dinner. We walked out, we looked at each other, and it's like, that didn't go well. <laughs> no, that didn't go well at all. And it was an incredible lesson, right? Because we had full passion, full belief. We knew this would work. And interestingly, we refused to take no. Refused to take no. So we contacted them the next morning and said, we want one more shot at it. We want to talk to you about it. This is, okay, you can come into our offices. So we went to their offices. And we thought we were going to sit on the conference room. He goes, no, no, no. Come down and sit by my colleague's desk. Here's his desk. You see all these books? This is how many he gets in a week. He gets 100 in a week. He can look at 10 of them. We can do one of them. He's run models for these. There's less than one chance in 10 million 
your idea will survive. One chance in 10 million. Mm -hmm. So you're saying we have a chance. So you're telling me there's a chance. There's a chance. Right? And 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 my uh, partner was an incredible optimist. And I think I was too young and naive to know that it couldn't be done, yep. right? All for if the better, though. If there's one chance in 10 million, it can be done, yeah, right? And that's this risk tolerance thing. So we said, all right, we're going to go for it. And we kept moving forward and, and uh, were able to form Community First in three different fashions, ultimately pulling them together, went public in 1991, which was amazing. I mean, we could spend like days and days on that journey. Um, grew the company, bought a lot of banks. Interestingly, we valued during the course of uh, our existence over a thousand banks using the evolutionary model that I started with originally that I developed when I was like 23 and just kept growing and building and learning from it and fine tuning it, making it better. And we're, we're fortunate that again, I think the whole part of our model was really focused on uh, not being the lowest cost provider, not trying to be everything for everybody, but really trying to develop a focus and, to identify how we can position ourselves so that we have, not a cliche, the best people possible, mm -hmm. the best resources that legitimately understand and care about the customer. And again, so many people say it, but it's so hard to live. And one of the things that we saw through this journey of growth was, and, and one of my colleagues who worked with me said it so well, we were buying banks and buying banks, and it's like, man, he goes, What's going to happen when we start forgetting our banks' names and the people? He goes, there's a bureaucracy of bigness. We need to declare war on the bureaucracy yep. of bigness. So, And this was very early in our journey, probably like 1991, when we came to Fargo. And from that time, we said, every time we move forward, every time we grow, how do we make sure we aren't doing the things that are the trappings of growth that you do because it's more efficient, it's more economical, or you need a different skill set, a different resource. You can get by with somebody at a different level that doesn't necessarily have the same ability to assist the client. Mm -hmm. And we said, we need to fight that. We need to resist it. It means that we will have a higher cost delivery model. Yep. You can't have the best people without paying and mm -hmm. investing. Exactly, yeah. So we built our whole process and culture around that and investing in energies and training. And again, to this day, I mean, we're so proud that we've had so many people and there's so many people that crafted this. Cause again, like I said, I'm not going to take credit for any of this. We've had so many incredibly talented people that just put ideas out there and crafted them. And I mean, I could name hundreds of people right now and, and they had different ideas to formulate this. Many of them are still in the banking space in this market here. You know, whether it was how we approached hiring trainees, how we developed training programs, how we approached business banking, how we approached this from a marketing standpoint, incredibly talented people. And we just gave them the runway to do really, really cool stuff, right? It's like, try a lot of stuff. There's not a lot of risk. Let's just go with it. And it worked and we had we had we had our own journey and then you know things are moving down the path and we get acquired. And and that changed it. And I tell people, I said, yeah, we we were acquired on Halloween of 2004, and I was retired for almost a day. Um, I walked my dog, I listened to 2112 a few times, I watched Jeopardy and said, I can't do this anymore. I need to do something else. So Craig Weiss, who's one of the most incredibly talented people I've ever known. Um, was with me at Community First and contacted Craig and said, Craig, we got to get after this. We got to do this again, only differently. Let's take what we've learned, fine tune it, and try to do it differently and better. So that's where, where Blackridge was uh, born, and we kind of went down that path and said, we'll just keep doing it. You know, again, 
life goes on and all of a sudden you realize you've been doing it for 40 years and you go, yep. oh my gosh. Over the course of 40 years, you've kind of seen all of these, all of these things happen and you've, you've interfaced with so many incredible people that have, have you know, been part of your story and impacted your story and created that organization. And, and again, I think that um, so many of us that have been affiliated with the, those organizations feel gratified that we've had a chance to work with so many incredibly talented people, which is what it's all about, right? And I think the testimony of that is there's a lot of people that I've worked with uh, that have worked with me, that have worked with each other, um, that are in, you know, not just financial services organizations in this marketplace, but other companies, and they're incredibly impactful. Um, and again, we've been able to be part of their journey, and, and they've been able to be part of our journey, and it's this mutual success, right? Mm-hmm. So I know, I know, Mark, one of the, one of the phrases that you use um, that I love is it's not the size of your book, you know, at the end of the day, when it's, when it's your time to leave, it's how many little snippets you have in other people's books, how many paragraphs you have. So what's, what's the big legacy that you really hope to leave behind? I mean, with everything that you've done in finance, because obviously, I mean, holy smokes, you're a, a expert when it comes to just the financial services industry, banking, I mean... All that. What's what's your big legacy? Well, I'm not sure anyone would claim to be an expert. Uh, (laughs) It's I can I can I can string together a lot of words and make sentences that confuse people. So if that qualifies as me an expert, (laughs) I got that one down. Um, But uh, uh, that said, the real context, and it's really important to have this because this is a Rush story. Um, In 2015, the band Rush came out with an album that was a concept album that was an updated steampunk world version of the story of Candide Olioptimisma by Voltaire. And it's this story of, of someone born into this certain lifestyle of luxury and then goes out into the world and bad things happen and bad things happen and bad things happen. And the, the life you thought you would lead wouldn't be led. And the end of the book is, is Candide in his garden, his literal and metaphorical garden. And he says, but we must cultivate our garden, right? C'est la répondre Candide, mais il faut cultiver notre jardin. The French people listening are laughing because my accent sounds like Mr. Gru. But if, if you aren't, if you aren't French speaking, isn't that elegantly pretentious that I just bang out a quote in French? Um, anyway, they love that at the coffee shop when I order in, in French. They're like, you're the only, <laughs> idiot. You like, huh? you're the only huh? village idiot that's done that today. Yeah. I said, yes, but it's a very special one. Um, but ultimately, uh, that was written by Neil Peart of Rush and Kevin J. Anderson, who's a New York Times bestselling author. They decided to collaborate and carry the story one step further. And in the prologue to that book, that it, which came out shortly afterwards, I opened the book. You know, he, every book is just providing words that are trying to pull you in, right? And which ones resonate with one person versus another can be a totally different issue. There might be something buried in there that just grabs you. Mm-hmm. And the prologue grabbed me. Some lives can be summed up in a sentence or two. Other lives are epics. And in the story, the protagonist is tasked with writing her book and her book is stories of other people's lives and I kept contemplating that and I said you know it isn't the size of your book it's how many other people see a reason to mention you in their book you've done something worthy of mentioning in their book Mm -hmm. right and you think about how profound that is because over our lives, we come in contact, we get to know, we become friends, colleagues, associates with so many people, right? And 
roll forward to when somebody is X years old and they're reflecting back in all these years. And I tell, I tell uh, students, I said, imagine you're 97 years old, sitting on the porch of uh, the retirement home, hustling other guys and little old ladies at checkers for a few bucks. And you sit back and go, you know, I had a really cool thing happen in my life and I went down this path and this path. And in there, there was Patrick Metzger did this and I remembered that. And someone else did this, and I remember that. It doesn't have to be a chapter. It doesn't have to be, here's the lantern in Moby Dick, right? It, it can be that little reference that I remember doing a podcast with Patrick Metzger, and it was really interesting. You don't know what it is, right? So mm-hmm. that you get that, that mention, and you don't know what it's going to be, right? What's going what's gonna to cause somebody to bring you into their world yep. that becomes influential in how, how they operate? Because the reality of it is, when you're gone, you're not going to influence other people's stories. And, it, and it's amazing, too, when you talk with people also about how you've, I mean, currently, of, of you know, random people will bring up how you have influenced them. And there's many times where I know I've gone, Holy smokes, I would have never guessed that. I would have never imagined that. Like I had zero clue, A, that you were even watching, mm-hmm. that you were paying attention, that it even made a difference in your life. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I had gone to, a couple of years ago, I went to a wedding and a young man who I coached when he was 14, 15 years old in Babe Ruth baseball. Mm-hmm. So he, at the time, I think it was like 1995. Okay, so he's, he's like 35. Yep. And we're at this wedding and, and stuff like that. And a guy comes up and picks me up from behind, shakes me. Coach, coach, I haven't seen you forever. I love you, coach. <laughs> and he sets me down. I'm like, he's this grown man, right? Big beard. He's got biceps like bigger than my legs. He's going, coach, you're the greatest coach ever. I said, well, no, maybe second. <laughs> I said, Patrick Metzger is first. <laughs> I said, no. He goes, seriously, coach, I love you. He goes, what you did for me those two years was so important. I learned so much. I go, really? I thought we were just screwing around trying to break all the rules and win games. Yep. And it's like 20 years later, he remembers that season. He goes, coach, you remember when we were in Boonville, Missouri, and you had me pitch, and I threw that ball and went 10 feet over the batter and hit the backstop? I said, I remember that vividly. He goes, I tell my kids about that, and they can't believe it. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. You just don't know what's going to resonate with somebody. It's those stories, and, and, and they can come from so many different uh, different venues and avenues, right? They can come at you from at any point in time. Yeah, personal, professional, everything. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really cool. So I think that's the interesting thing that, that becomes so gratifying when you go, yeah. And, and you can have an impact, and you may never, ever know what it means to them. Mm-hmm. You, may, you will never know that you're in their book, yep. but it doesn't matter. You can feel it, right? Yep. And again, I think that there, there's a little bit of that piece. And you know, you don't know what it's going to be. You don't know what you're going to be known for or remembered for, if remembered at all, right? And, and I think that's this unique piece. And, and as you look at those, uh, and I've told this, and I think I told you, is that Sawyer was asked to speak at DMF, which is crazy. They haven't asked me yet. Hey, Pat, trainer. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> you had the better, you had the better Anderson speaking. Asked to speak at DMF, and she went there and, and gave a presentation when she was uh, nine. And uh, and one of the one of the gracious people that worked at DMF, which does incredible stuff in this marketplace. I mean, talk about a blessing. And they said, Sawyer, you've done this and this and this. He goes, What are you going to do when you get older? And she goes, I don't know. My path hasn't chosen me. And I'm like, I wish I had thought of that. That is so incredibly yeah. good. 
pretty profound for a young kid. I'm like, gee, I need it. So unfortunately, I guess I attribute it to her. I could say it's mine, and I told it to her to say it, but I didn't. But I look at it and I go, <laughs> paths are still choosing all of us, right? Yep. I mean, I go back in time, and it's it's almost four years ago right now, one of the pastors at our church came up after a Wednesday night Hope Kids and said, hey, Mark, I want to talk to you this week. I go, no, 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 don't do that. This is like Christmas. I can't put that present under the tree. What do you want to talk to me about? Do you want to go to Africa? I go, sure, why? He goes, oh, you want to go on a water trip? I said, okay, when do we leave? And I get home and I said, hey, Jennifer, my wife. I said, Pastor Paul asked if I want to go to Africa. And my wife goes, when do you leave? <laughs> I said, she knows well, you. <laughs> what makes you think I'm going? She goes, it's an adventure, right? He goes, okay, you're going. Yep. I go, all right, didn't know what I was doing. But the thing is, you don't know how pivotal that moment is in your future. Because mm-hmm. now that we're four years down the road, I can look at this and I go, who would have imagined this journey, right? Yeah. I mean, if I hadn't gone, if I'd gone differently, if I hadn't come back and told a story, blah, blah, all these different what ifs, right? Yeah. And, you know, Mark, I think that's one reason why I have such a hard time turning down like opportunities, phone calls, meet random people, you know, because I have I have random people reach out, you know, they want to, whether it's be on the podcast, they want to talk, you know, LinkedIn, random email, whatever. And I'm always just like, yes, 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 yes. Because I'm such a big believer in that. Like, you never know the connections that you're going to form, the people you're going to meet, where it's going to take you. Um, it's unpredictable. It's 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 incredible. And and I look at this and I still, obviously, I, I speak with the people uh, that are affiliated with the trip and I look back at it and I reflect on it and, and we, we talk about it and I go, you know, there's no way I would have imagined the journey would have gone down this path. Yeah. And I look at it today as to how it's evolved. And again, I'm the math guy, the Uber guy, and Betsy Ross. I mean, I'm not high-priced talent. I mean, this is not one of the skill positions, although sewing is is pretty tough. Um, and it's like, I'm cool letting an 11-year-old run with it and being her assistant and, and letting her do her thing because that's the path that's chosen me, right? And for whatever reason, she's been chosen, and, and, and it's aligned so that she's had this incredible opportunity to make an impact to bring water to 20,000 people. And I roll back on this and I go, I just wanted to go for an adventure and learn some things. Yeah. Had no expectation, right? Because one of the things they asked us when we we're getting ready to, to, to leave the country was, you know, what do you see yourself doing when you get back with this? I'm like, I don't know. I guess we'll film a video and tell the congregation about it. Yep. That was it, right? No. Yeah. Yeah, who would have guessed? It's a whole different plan. And and the thing is, like so many things in, in life, you're not at the end of the path, right? You're not at the end of the garden. The garden is the most elegant metaphor for so many things mm-hmm. that we're going through. We're still in the garden. The vegetables are still growing. The flowers are blooming. We're, we're taking it in. More seeds are being planted. It's continuing to grow. And I think the garden is growing. And you don't know when you get to the end of that garden. Mm-hmm. Maybe we never do. I don't think you do. It's, it's someone, you know, I think someone else always picks up the work in your garden after after your time with the garden is done. Yeah, it's it's just an interesting journey, but I think you're you're right on target. It's that interesting opportunity to meet people and and identify the connection pieces, right? Yeah. It's like how are we connected? Mhm. What's that common bond that we have? What's the most common denominator? At one point in time, you know, the old Kevin degree, uh, ten, seven, uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah. You know, we were we were two, three degrees apart. All of a sudden, we closed it, and we got this network model where, you know, we were like this. Now we're connected. 
And it's like, ah, here we are. And, and we share multiple things or one thing. And it's this common bond that all of a sudden it's like, yeah, let's just roll with it. Yep. I think that's the cool thing is looking for those opportunities to find the common bonds, establish those new pieces, and then bring something in to say, okay, well, you've got a unique perspective than I have. We have mm-hmm. a common bond, but you're different. Yep. And I can learn from that piece. And it's a little bit of that mental wanderlust thing. So what, what's the next big thing in, uh, in line for the, the gardener who is Mark Anderson? Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's interesting because, again, I go non-pretentiously. People talk about things academically. It's like I just, I've had this incredible opportunity academically. I mean, it's like I, I just am I'm so incredibly blessed to have had these. And a lot of people, you know, it's not their thing. And, and I hope everybody finds the things that motivate them. I have a, a very, very good friend who's a ridiculously talented golfer. Ridiculously talented. I played with him. And I'm like, how do you humanly do that? And he loves it. And he can play 36 holes a day. And I was like, oh, okay. And I'm going through processes. And he goes, how do you do that? How do you humanly go and write a dissertation? Yep. I go, you know how you feel about golf? He goes, yeah, that's how I feel about this. Mm-hmm. I said, I can plug myself into the computer. I can work on a model. I can work on this artificial intelligence model. I can get results back. The numbers are talking to me. That's like you nailing a 20-foot putt. Yep. He goes, now I get it. So, I mean, there's a lot of next things, and it's, it's that opportunity to grow and expand your horizons, find some comfort zones and, and move down some new paths. Um, like I said, been really, really fortunate to kind of have seen some really cool things, you know, at, at different levels and and each level opens up the next path, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing. I mean, you know, why am I dabbling? It's a little bit like the movie uh, Field of Dreams where the Terrence Mann, James Earl Jones character goes, yeah, he went away and he started dabbling with, you know, children's education and software. It's like, you don't just dabble with it. You got to know some stuff. You got to dig in, right? So it's like, yeah, I kind of dabble with artificial intelligence. So I've kind of developed a model that does some really, really cool stuff using words that sound pretentious or elegant or complex, you know, multi-layer perceptron with feed-forward technology and backpropagation. <laughs> and it's like, what is that? I said, well, basically it's machine learning and artificial intelligence, and it mixed the mind. And it's interesting how it happened because you asked the question earlier. I was in Grenoble, France, when I was working on non-pretentiously, my first doctorate. How many people get to say that? When I was working on my first doctorate. <laughs> yeah, very few ever say a doctorate. I got bored when they were talking about quantitative analysis because it was pretty boring what they were doing because some of the people hadn't had that exposure, right? They were probably ridiculously exposed in different areas. But I said, but it was things I had been blessed with having a chance to have worked with. So I was, I was able to procure some software through the university and access some machine learning, multi-layer perceptron stuff, and just started stumbling my way in the dark. Right? You, it's a little bit like Ready Player One when, when Parzival comes through and he goes, you know, James Halloway ends up, ends up creating the Oasis. And, and you go in there, it's like, how do you find that, that hidden Easter egg? Well, you go into a dark room and wander around, and then you find it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what I did with artificial intelligence. The machine didn't blow up. I had no training. Just stumbled in and said, I'm just going to start trying everything I can. Got a lot of bad results. Yeah. And it's that, that lesson there is try a lot of stuff. Find success through right? multiple failures. I mean, I'm not, it's yeah. not like I'm defusing a bomb and I've got two wires and one of them's going to blow me up. Yeah. It's like I'm working with a PC. If I do this, I get an error message. Big deal. You know how many error messages I've got in my life? A lot. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so I crashed the computer. Big deal. Um, so 
kind of dabbled with that, and that was way back in 2012 and kind of germinated and said, I want to work with this, I want to work with this, work with this. So I've had a chance to do some different things. And then when this program came along, and again, everybody should have the opportunity to, to tell their wife they want to go after a, a fifth doctorate. My wife thought I was, I was really sane at that time. She goes, are you completely nuts? Why? I said, because it's fun. Why not? Because it's fun. She goes, what? How can it be fun? I said, you don't understand. This is a ridiculously cool journey that not everybody gets to do. Yep. This is an adventure. It's an adventure. To each their own. And, and she goes, well, what are you going to do? And he goes, well, I want to work with technical stock market indicators, which is a really narrow you know, locus of, of, of expertise. And there are some people that are incredibly gifted and talented and do some things that really confuse people. And I've been looking at this and researching this and doing things. I said, I really find it fascinating. And I said, but I think there's this opportunity to develop an artificial intelligence model that learns from it to make something better. And she's like, I don't know what you just said, so quit talking. <laughs> I said, okay, fine. I'll take that advice. And uh, so when people ask, it's like, okay, I need to have discretion. It's really cool. It uses some, some technical indicators from information that's out there, no inside information, and an artificial neural network. It's this computer model that has neurons like the brain and have put this thing together in a way that basically creates a, it identifies a number and if a stock does something, it says the price is going to go down in 30 days. And uh, it's incredibly accurate. It's incredibly accurate. The next path, because we were chatting earlier, I just finished. I'm doing a three-essay three dissertation that I'll have a chance. I'm just wrapping up the third essay right now. And it's led me down a different path like so many things do, right? The whole orientation was let's focus on, and this is the interesting thing, let's focus on, what's called the correct directional prediction percentage. How many percent of the time is it correct? Is it correct 99.83% of the time? But are there any times it doesn't work at all? Yes, mm -hmm. there are. So with three essays, I said, well, I did 100 companies, and it, you couldn't find that number in seven of them. So seven of them, it didn't work at all. Worked for 93. Seven of them, you couldn't, you didn't use throughout, right? It's not in your decision set. Then I looked at the next set, and there were... 37 it didn't work for out of 120. Okay, something's going on here, right? So then I went to another group of data and other things, looking at other stocks, and it didn't work 57% of the time. The model worked. The model worked. It didn't identify a number. The whole focus is, let's say that it's, it's Netflix. It identifies a single number for Netflix. And when some indicator hits that number for Netflix, yep. price will go down. Trigger. Right? It's a trigger. That's what I call it. An overbought trigger. So in this one set of portfolios, it said, oh, 55 out of 120 times, it found a trigger. If it found a trigger, it worked almost 100% of the time. Pretty cool to have a decision tool that mm -hmm. works 100% of the time. So it's easy to get caught up and say, I have a decision tool that's going to work 99.9% of the time. In the real world, over the course of the last 16 months, it's missed once. Huh. Wow. But then this third essay is probably down the path saying, but wait a minute. It worked well in 55 of those. Why didn't it work in the other 65? What's going on? What are those exogenous impacts or this endogenous variables that are saying something's going on? And because of that, we can't generate a number. Mm -hmm. If you can't generate a number, it's not going to work. And what would happen if you could never generate a number? Then it would never work. Yep. So in my mind, it's like, I'm not focusing on what that number is. I'm focusing on 
what's going to cause that number to not exist? So it's kind of a cool journey, kind of fun stuff. Interesting. Well, I'll be anxious to uh, to follow the progress of that. <laughs> yeah, what I do with it remains to be seen, but it's kind of neat. It's kind of fun talking about it because people go, "That's." What would be your ultimate goal with it? You know, I, I believe that it's it's a tool that that as I carry it forward, I think that it has the ability to be a decisioning tool that an organization that get can access speed, high frequency stuff to employ it um, to sell the decisioning tool for something. I mean, right now I'm trading on it and it works well uh, and I can just keep doing that for fun as a hobby. Uh, but part of it is let's create something and if someone finds a way to take it the next level, let them run with it. Yep. How cool would it be to have a company come in and say, hey, you got this deal. I want to pay you X dollars and we're going to put it in and we're going to run a billion dollars with it. There's no way I'd be able to run a billion dollars with it. hundred dollars. Yep. thousand dollars. But it's like this is something that we think would work, right? So I think that's kind of the cool next piece is let's keep refining this piece. Let's let's trade with it. Let's get that that track record and history and put it out there and and let's an organization that has the resources, has the technology to bring the speed of information in. Because right now the process is heavily manual, right? I mean, if it's all about getting stock prices, they can get stock prices so much faster than I can operate it, make a decision, do it. Um, that the architecture and the decisioning processes are valid. The increment to make it a widespread success is speed. And speed requires kind of having the tools to invest in it. So that that kind of would be fun. Kind of need to see. Interesting. Well, it sounds like you're laying the bricks for it. So cool. Well, Mark, where um, where can our listeners find you and follow you? Well, unlike my uh, 11, soon to be 12 year old, I don't have a couple of Facebook pages <laughs> uh, dedicated to my side ventures and uh and a, and a web page, but uh, um, I'm kind of navigating around. And if anybody wants to reach me, you've got the doctor 2112 catches those things, right? It's like 2112 is that apocryphal thing that finds its way into so many different things that we do. Um, yes, it's on my license plates. Um, and, and there, so again, um, I'm in there. Um, I've had a chance to share comments some people are gluttons for punishment and are willing to have me speak to them, which is pretty interesting. I'm always willing to, all you have to do is give me a cup of coffee and I'll talk for three hours. Uh, cheap labor, right? <laughs> yeah, um, no kidding. But no, don't, uh, don't have my own dedicated page for anything yet. Cause I don't know that I have anything that warrants my own page. Um, but you know, I'm out there in the LinkedIn space. I've got my own Facebook page that uh, I probably spend more time sharing what the kid does than anything that's all right uh, but we got a nice little office set up where we do some different things and squirreled away and when i have a good day i get to spend x hours playing with the model and then some other things so awesome well i know um yeah absolutely everybody listening make sure to check the the show notes because i'll link all of mark's companies i know uh chrono square and your man you, you're involved in cattle you got a home building company uh, a blinds company just as of recently so uh yeah, a man of many, many talents here and uh, endeavors. The representatives for an 11-year-old international author philanthropist. Since she can't <laughs> sign her own contracts, somebody has to. Buddy. Okay, well, Mark, thanks uh, thanks so much for hopping on here today. It was awesome. Hey, it's always a treat. If, uh, if you had more stamina, we could see if we could go until midnight. I'm sure we could. I'm sure we could. Okay. Uh, thanks again, everybody, uh, for checking out the episode with that. Uh, don't forget to follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook at Patrick Metzger Coaching. Uh, thanks so much for listening, tuning into the episode. Be sure to subscribe to, rate the podcast, 
Again, like I said, you can check out all of Mark's links in the show notes at patrick-metzger.com. And uh, don't forget to take a screenshot of today's show. Take myself, take Mark, take Sawyer, his daughter. She's definitely going places crazy, uh, crazy, crazy what she's up to and and what it's doing, um, how it's helping the world. So until next time, I want to remind everybody to own you and the journey.